Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan, and this week I will be joined by Food and Water Watch's Tyler Lobdell, who will tell us about his recent victory in the Ninth Circuit in Food and Water Watch versus United States Environmental Protection Agency, in which the court agreed that the EPA had failed to include meaningful water pollution monitoring requirements in permits for Idaho factory farms. In Idaho alone, there are several hundred factory farms that produce vast quantities of pollutants like E. coli, nitrogen, phosphorus, pharmaceuticals, and heavy metals. Because of the lack of adequate regulation, the industry has contributed to the 2,000 miles of streams and rivers, 2,000 miles that are now considered impaired by pollutants commonly associated with factory farm waste. It is truly a disgrace. And Tyler will fill us in on what this decision means for the industry going forward and what we need to know about how the Clean Water Act regulates or far too often fails to regulate factory farm waste. Before we get to that interview, I just want to mention that I hope you're also checking out the Our Hen House podcast, which, of course, I co-host along with Jasmine Singer. And I'd love it if you would check out my recent interview with filmmakers Keegan Kuhn and John Lewis about their new movie about the systemic racism within the food system. They're trying to kill us. Also, Jasmine's spectacular interview with animal activist, memoirist, and actress of Harry Potter fame, Ivana Lynch. She, of course, played Luna Lovegood. And my interview with nutritionist and activist, Tracy McWhorter, about her efforts to get 10 million Black women to go vegan. How about that? I'll also take a moment to ask for your support for the Animal Law Podcast and the Our Hen House Podcast. If you're at a place where you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org donate. There, you can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make a one-time donation in any amount, and it is a particularly great time to do that, since from now until the end of the year, which is really creeping up very, very fast, all donations, I shouldn't be laughing, all donations up to $20,000 will be tripled, but they're only that's only going to happen if we can raise $20,000 from our listeners, and we are not there yet. So we would be so grateful if you could chip in. Okay, let's get to this interview. Tyler Lobdell is a staff attorney with Food and Water Watch, where he focuses on combating factory farms through legal advocacy. Prior to joining Food and Water Watch, Tyler spent two years as the Animal Legal Defense Fund's Food Law Fellow. He is particularly interested in the intersections between animal law and environmental law. Tyler graduated from Lewis and Clark Law School where he served as co-editor-in-chief of the Animal Law Review. A longtime environmentalist, Tyler spent almost 10 years leading conservation programs across the U.S. before attending law school, and he will be joining me right after this. We are so excited to share a new free resource from the Brooks Institute for Animal Rights Law and Policy, the Brooks Animal Law Digest Canada Edition. This edition is a premier free online publication dedicated to offering in-depth and up-to-date coverage on Canada's most important animal law and policy issues. It will be published twice monthly as a collaborative effort with the University of Toronto Faculty of Law's research support. Like the Brooks Animal Law Digest US edition, the Canadian Digest serves as a resource for anyone interested in learning more about the field of animal law either as a high-level overview of developments or as a jumping-off point for digging into a specific current issue in the field. All content will be accessible on the Brooks Institute website and spotlighted via email twice monthly. 
Subscribe to the Brooks Animal Law Digest Canada edition at thebrooksinstitute.org slash subscribe. And of course, if you're not yet subscribed to the U.S. edition, you can do the same for that there. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Tyler. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. I am intimidated, as I always am, when I have an environmental law case, and this case involves the Clean Water Act. But, you know, it's the burden of animal lawyers who are not environmental lawyers that we have to know something about this, and it's hard, so be kind. But this is such an important case, and I think, from what I've read, could be the beginning of more positive developments in in environmental environmental law as it regulates factory farms, which we all know has not done a great job at. So can we just start by setting the scene a bit before we get into the details of the case? And I think listeners are probably fairly familiar with factory farms, so you don't have to, or as the law calls them, CAFOs, you don't have to start from ground zero there. But can you give us an overview, perhaps, of what they do with all of that, I will call it animal waste, in the interests of, of of civility. Just where does it all go? Yeah, it's a really great question. And so I'm going to start four decades ago and say sort of how we got to this place, because the way that factory farms are operated, and in particular, the way they manage the extraordinary amount of waste that their animals produce, it's something relatively new for how we raise food in our society or in any society. And so you know, starting in about the 70s and then very much in the 80s and 90s, this whole mentality of get big or get out in the agricultural industry really took hold. And this is when we started to see this transition from what most people think of as farmers to this highly industrialized, highly concentrated factory farm system. And so we went from an ethic where The basic principle was you don't raise more animals than the acreage you have can sustain to a model of now we have no land factory farms with 170,000 animals confined in their buildings. And they have no acreage to manage the waste that those animals create, right? And so your question of how is this waste managed? Well, I'm going to distinguish between the dairy and the cow industry and the pig industry on one hand, and then the chicken industry on the other. In the former, there's a variety of different systems that are used, but basically the animals are confined and their waste accumulates in those confinement buildings. And it's either flushed out or it's removed from the building in some way, typically flushed with fresh water. And then it's collected in what the industry euphemistically calls lagoons. So there are these enormous, you know, multi-football size field cesspools that hold all of this waste. And, you know, I think your the way you phrased your question was really apt because the industry wants the public to think of this as fertilizer, as, as manure, which is fertilizer and is great for crops. The reality is that CAFO waste has a whole host of pollutants in it. There's the manure, of course, but there's also the hormones that the animals are given. There's the other pharmaceuticals that are used to keep the animals alive in these atrocious conditions. There's the chemicals and the cleaners that they use, particularly in dairy operations. There's heavy metals, right? And so this this waste stream is far more dangerous than I think a lot of people recognize because they just think it's manure and we've been putting manure on the land for thousands of years, right? So what's the big deal? So these large lagoons are the, the standard operating procedure for 
pig factory farms, cow factory farms. In the chicken industry, the waste is typically not liquefied. So it's, it's litter is what they call it, which is the dry bedding, the feathers, the chickens that have died and weren't taken out of the building, and all of the manure and urine from, from the chickens. So that dry waste doesn't end up in a lagoon, but it is still land applied. And I'm sorry, I should have said for both systems, the way this works is the waste goes into a holding facility, be it a lagoon or compost rows or a barn for the chicken industry, and then it's land applied. In other words, it's it's disposed of on fields. Now, can I just interrupt you for a second? Because you said they don't, they frequently don't have any land, but they have enough land to spray it onto. Can you just talk a little bit about what what happens to that land? It's presumably not then used to grow waving fields of, of grain. Yes, they are used to grow crops. And this is one of the really big challenges in holding the factory farm industry accountable because there's this constellation of ownership over the factory farm and the lands and the, the waste stream itself, right? And so it's what the industry calls manifesting. So if I'm a factory farm operator and I have a zero acre farm, quote unquote farm, I manifest my waste to other entities to spread it on their land. And manifest just means I, I, I give it away to them, essentially, or, or maybe they pay some marginal amount for it. But typically, I'm giving it away because it's a liability for me, and I can just sort of get it off my operation um, with very little oversight. I, and, I, I just want to take a moment to recognize that that's a hilarious word. They manifest. <laughs> it, is, it doesn't make any sense. Where did, where did they come up with that so word? It com- it, it's, it's like... Sorry. Oh, no, you're totally fine. It's totally counterintuitive. <laughs> it comes from the piece of paper that they fill out when they give the manure away. It's called the manifest form, which incidentally oh, right, is, right. is never made public. <laughs> it should be, but that's that's where the word comes from. It sounded vaguely religious, like, uh, like he manifested. <laughs> anyway, go on. I'm, I'm, I'm being frivolous. Go on. And so, you know, in terms of accountability, and we're going to come back to this, this is a a major problem because once the waste is quote unquote manifested, it oftentimes disappears from any regulatory view, right? And so it's a way for the factory farm to get rid of this pollution outside the eyes of regulators, if there's regulators who care in their jurisdiction, which is a whole other question. So it's really a way to sort of just like shuffle your pollution around to the point where nobody's watching and nobody has any accountability. And the unfortunate reality is that these different entities are often fundamentally related. It'll be, you know, Joe Schmo owns the factory farm and Jane Doe, his daughter, owns all these fields that they spread the waste on. And there's this legal fiction that these are two totally separate entities and they aren't related to each other, even though they're the same family operating both. And the poultry industry, you know, operates in the exact same way, especially let's take the Delmarva, the Delaware, Maryland area, where the chicken industry is extremely prevalent. You know, they, everyone there recognizes that there's a waste management catastrophe that the poultry industry has caused. And so there's a whole lot of conversation, unfortunately, around band-aids and like bizarre tech fixes to deal with the problem. And no one, very few people are willing to question the factory farm system itself, right? They don't want to look at the root cause. They just want to like throw a Band-Aid on the symptoms. But that same dynamic is a problem really everywhere in this country where factory farms predominate. So I live in Southern Idaho. We have a very robust dairy industry. Surprise, surprise, as the dairy industry has grown, so has our water pollution, so has our contamination of groundwater, right? Like this, this waste management conundrum 
necessarily follows the growth of factory farms in a region. Yeah, and although this case that we're going to talk about does involve Idaho, I've seen several people mention that it has national implications. And from what you're saying, this system is fairly consistent all over the country. Now, I mean, it seems kind of obvious if you're if you're spreading this waste uh, everywhere, that it's going to get into the water. And we do have something called the Clean Water Act, as we all know. And this is, I'm just going to give a quote from this decision right from the beginning. And this is really just definitional. And then I'm going to ask you to, to define some of the terms that are involved in this case. The Clean Water Act prohibits the discharge of any pollutant by any person from any point source into the navigable waters of the United States, except when the discharge is authorized by a permit issued under the NPDES. Now, can you just deconstruct that sentence for us and tell us what all those things are? Sure. And let me know if I miss any that are that are pertinent. All right. All right. So the premise of the Clean Water Act is that no pollution can be discharged into federal waters, what, what the Clean Water Act calls jurisdictional waters or navigable waters, essentially just those waters that the federal government has decided are within the purview of the Clean Water Act. And so many of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the waters of the United States fights, the endless decades-long battle over what what are waters of the United States. That's what that debate is about. How far does the scope of the Clean Water Act reach? And the only way an entity can put pollution into those waters is if they have a Clean Water Act permit, right? And so that's the NPDES permit process, the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System permitting process. And so that's Section 402 of the Clean Water Act. And under that system, there are what are called effluent limitation guidelines that set out sort of the the basic limits or the basic technologies that have to be in place industry by industry to control the pollutants that they, they put into our waterways. And so the term point source is extremely important here because under the Clean Water Act, only point sources are regulated. Contrast point source with non-point source. And it's actually a very intuitive word. Point source is like the most quintessential example is a pipe that comes out of a slaughterhouse or some sort of factory and is is discharging its wastewater into a river. Like that is a point. The source is coming from that point, hence point source. CAFOs, by their nature, are less obvious than a pipe coming out of a slaughterhouse and throwing its wastewater into a river. They're dispersed. They have these fields that they land apply to. The production areas are large, and there's a whole variety of places where factory farms discharge. But Congress, when they enacted the Clean Water Act, specifically called out factory farms in the definition of point source. And so the factory farm industry loves to complain about, oh, well, you know, you're trying to regulate dry ditches, and we're not a point source. Um, and just have no recognition that Congress specifically identified the growing risk of these highly concentrated industrialized animal raising facilities as as a paramount concern going forward to protect our shared water resources. And so it's unambiguous that factory farms are point sources under the Clean Water Act. Unfortunately, the industry has been very good at building a narrative opposite to that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I didn't realize. I mean, I just had always heard that 
factory farms, CAFOs are, you know, there's a definition of what a CAFO is, but it, virtually every factory farm meets it. I just always heard there were points horses and I didn't know that was, they, they were trying to debate even that. And, you know, I just want to take a moment to give a shout out to the 70s, which I personally remember. And I know boomers get a lot for things that we've done over the years. But let's face it, those were some good statutes when they got passed. And the fact that they put factory farms right in there is really miraculous. I couldn't pull that off today. So before, again, before we get to the case, you alluded to this, but I'd just like to go into it a little bit more in detail. What is the current situation of water in Idaho? Idaho, from what I understand, has opened the doors to factory farms and the situation there really has changed pretty dramatically, even relatively recently. Is that true? And is the water getting worse? Oh, that's absolutely true. And the water is getting much worse. There's a sort of the preeminent environmental organization, Idaho, the Idaho Conservation League has been doing research on this for the past few years. And again, the, the dairy industry really exploded in the late aughts as you said, when regulators sort of like made this open door policy for the industry to come in. Idaho is now the third largest dairy producing state in the country behind California and Wisconsin. And you can track the data as, as the industry has expanded. You can track the increase in water pollution in groundwater pollution. And what we're seeing now, and this is awfully technical, so I won't go into too much detail, but two of the main pollutants of concern in factory farm waste because of the manure portion well, actually, there's a variety of sources to these two pollutants, but nitrogen and phosphorus, right? So these are the, the fertilizers that the industry likes to characterize its waste stream as, as being great for. But in large quantities, nitrogen and phosphorus are very harmful to the environment. And phosphorus is particularly interesting to watch these trends because phosphorus binds to soil really well. Nit nitrogen doesn't. And so what we now see in Idaho is this slow accumulation of phosphorus in our soils and not a whole lot of water pollution from that until two years ago when the tipping point was reached. The soil was saturated with phosphorus because so much animal manure is getting put onto the land. And now we see this exponential spike in phosphorus water pollution, right? Because the same enormous quantities of pollution are getting put onto the landscape, but the landscape can no longer accommodate it. And it only took a few years for that to happen. And so now we're going to see the vast, we're going to see a lot of that phosphorus end up in waterways, which fuel harmful algal blooms, fish kills, you know, all these problems that are becoming more and more common around the country. Yeah, that's something I definitely didn't realize that. So it, it makes total sense. It takes time after they move in for things to get really, really bad. And then they're very entrenched by the time things get so bad that people are starting to panic. Exactly. All right. So let's talk about the case and just tell us, how did this come about? Like who found out what was happening, what the problem was, and how did they get it to the point that you could take it to court? This goes back several years at Food and Water Watch before my time with the organization. But, you know, our legal team recognized that the factory farm industry is operating in this black box of unaccountability. And so there was a lot of effort put into identifying the reasons for that. Like, why is the regulatory regime so ineffective? Why do factory farms get a free pass? It seems like all the time. And what rose to the top was this issue of monitoring. So under the Clean Water Act, compliance and enforcement is based on self-reporting of your discharges, 
uh, self-monitoring already sounds bad, but that's what you're arguing for really here. That's right. And let me, I, I don't disagree with that, but I let me give you a reason why we think that a self-monitoring regime is better than no monitoring regime. And that's because, so let's just take a slaughterhouse again. What they have to do is they have to submit reports on a typically a quarterly basis, which are called discharge monitoring reports. They're very straightforward. It's like outfall one, outfall two. Here's what came out of it that day. Put right next to their permit limits. And they have to identify exceedances, right? And so, sure, an entity certainly can, and I'm sure do, falsify those reports. But there are very strict penalties for doing so. In other words, there's a robust enforcement arm that incentivizes operators to honestly report their discharges. And quite frankly, EPA like almost never does anything anyway, or, or state agencies. So like if I'm an industry actor and I report my DMR with violations, I'm not very worried because unless some unless a citizen sues me, like the state agency or the EPA is unlikely to do anything meaningful. So the self-reporting model has has surprisingly worked quite well actually for, for other industries. What the factory farm industry gets is, is they, they don't have any of that, right? There's no monitoring regime in place because of this myth that's been built up that factory farms are zero discharge facilities. And so EPA writes these permits in a very convoluted way. Um, it took me several months to get my head around why the permits are written the way they are and the disconnect between that and reality <laughs> because like the terms of the permits are so unrelated to water quality unrelated to the actual impacts on waterways that epa has sort of built this edifice of zero discharge that they hide behind now and so like for example the idaho permit had a essentially a zero discharge limit from production areas, which are the places where animals are held, where the feed is stored, the places where you're not land applying the manure, that's the production area. And so EPA then turns around and says, well, you know, it's a zero discharge permit, so we don't need to, like, what, there's nothing to monitor. Now, the fundamental error there is that there was no discharge needs to be monitored. You know, zero is a, a numeric that's limit. That's crazy. Yeah, it, it is crazy. And yet it's, what I'm saying is considered radical and extreme because of how long this myth has persisted, if that makes sense. It makes total sense to me because when I was reading, I mean, it, like in two different ways. One is, as I was reading this, and I'm glad to say it took you months because I didn't have that long to read <laughs> on, this, on this case. And, you know, they were talking about zero discharge and then there were the types of discharge that were allowed under zero discharge. But then like what you're saying is they're saying, well, it's zero discharge, so we don't have to monitor it. Well, just because they're only allowed to discharge zero doesn't mean that they are discharging zero. It just seems that's such circular reasoning. It's, it's extremely circular. And to be fair, I, I do want to give EPA some credit in how they briefed this case because they really didn't hew too closely to industry talking points. So EPA didn't argue that because it's a zero discharge limitation that they don't need to monitor. They chose to argue the really, really untenable position that monitoring is required and the permit has monitoring. So they pointed to things like they have to test the phosphorus in a receiving field once every three years. They tried to argue that that was monitoring that assures compliance with no discharge, right? Which is just absurd. 
since the monitoring is the crux of the case, let's go into it like step by step and in, and in detail, because I really think that that's where things fall apart. But f- before we do that, I just want to set out a few more things. You talked about the Idaho permit, and I was not previously familiar with the fact that permits were given out for entire states. There aren't separate permits for the individual factory farms. It's just like a general permit that covers Idaho. That's correct. And that is EPA's preferred approach to the factory farm industry is to achieve regulatory oversight through general permits as opposed to individual permits. Now, to complicate this very significantly, and we can come back to this, but part of the reason why we chose this permit as our vehicle to bring this challenge was specifically because it was an EPA-issued permit for the state of Idaho. Now 47 states are, are what's called delegated under the Clean Water Act. And so the state itself runs the permitting program. So Food and Water Watch brought a very similar challenge against the poultry industry in, I think it was 2016 and 2017, but those cases were heard in Maryland and Delaware state courts because it was Maryland and Delaware state agencies that issued those permits. And both of those opinions were poorly reasoned, sloppy, and reached a conclusion to make industry happy. And so recognizing that real challenge of state court battles, and because you're not achieving broad impact, it's going to be state by state, this opportunity to challenge an EPA-issued factory farm permit was an important opportunity because it doesn't happen often. It was a way to like force EPA's hand to recognize the obvious text of the Clean Water Act without having to like win 40, 47 states. So this decision, well, that's, I mean, that's terrible. And I was unaware of that. But this decision will also govern, even if states are looking at it, even if state court, state agencies and state, they still have to now pay attention to this decision, don't they? Because it's interpreting the act. Absolutely, they do. And you can expect a lot of fights over state-issued permits going forward. I don't want to disclose anything that, that I shouldn't, but I, I will say I've had two conversations already with local advocates in two different states, and the state agency has come to the table after this decision, recognizing that they've got to change their permit. And so that was that's the hope behind a case like this. Yeah, this is a wrinkle I was unaware of. I didn't realize that it was so unusual that um, it would be an EPA-issued um, permit. Now, another thing that I just want to straighten out before we get into the details is, um, why are you in the Court of Appeals? You know, I, I picked this case up and I'm looking for the district court opinion and there isn't any district court opinion. And I'm like, okay, we're in environmental law. Everything's different. So so how does this, procedurally, how does this work? Sure. So under the Clean Water Act, the Section 509 of the Clean Water Act, the review provision that we went to court under, there's five or six specific EPA actions under the Clean Water Act that get direct review to the, the appropriate court of appeals. And issuing one of these NPDES permits is one of those actions. And so it can be an individual permit or a general permit like it was in this case that will bypass the district court level. And the the policy rationale behind it is simply that these are important decisions and Congress wanted stability in the law, right? So when an issue came up, they wanted it to not be piecemeal, actor by actor to figure out what the state of the law is. They wanted the regulated community to like, know what to expect, essentially, and felt that taking these issues to circuit courts directly was a way to accomplish that. 
Well, again, kudos to the Congress of the 70s, because that seems like a very good policy. All right. So the standard of review was, is arbitrary and capricious. Is that right? Like any administrative case. So you're, you've got a, a tough a tough road to hoe there. That's correct. Yep. The Clean Water Act transposes the APA, the Administrative Procedures Act, arbitrary, capricious, contrary to law standard. Yep. So it's a deferential standard, as you note. All right. So you bring this lawsuit and there's also a timeliness claim, which I admit I didn't understand. Is it worth going into? Uh, can you just briefly tell us what, because it didn't make any sense to me, but you know, I, I wasn't really that familiar with the issues. The timeliness claim seemed to be arguing that you could never bring any claim at all. Exactly. Oh, so I was right. Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 you know, you're absolutely correct. And I will go into it. Thankfully, the court saw it for what it was, which is a total red herring and just a frankly, almost frivolous argument. So what EPA was arguing was that when they promulgated their CAFO rules in 2003, that the issue of monitoring came up through that process. And because it came up and they didn't promulgate nationwide, remember I mentioned those effluent limitation guidelines, because they didn't include monitoring in the effluent limitation guidelines for factory farms at that time, that foreclosed the question for all eternity. I mean, bizarrely, and the court kind of really struck on this in its opinion, in that rulemaking, EPA says we're not going to take up monitoring because that's going to be better handled when permits are issued, like when actual permits go out. And now they're talking out the other side of their mouth and saying that, oh, well, you are, you're foreclosed. You had to bring this lawsuit 120 days from when we promulgated the 2003 rule, or you can never do so. Uh, thankfully, the court shot that down. And if I can, because I do think this is sort of helpful context for this whole industry, and the 2003 rule started this process. So EPA actually tried to more rigorously regulate factory farms twice in the aughts. The 2003 rule was the first attempt. The industry then sued, well, kind of everybody sued over various aspects of the rule. And that case was called the Waterkeeper Alliance case. And that the issue, the decision was issued in 2005. And what EPA had tried to do was establish a regulatory framework where CAFOs are presumed to discharge pollution. In other words, they have to get a Clean Water Act permit unless they can show otherwise. So there was this avenue for a factory farm to establish they had no potential to discharge, and then they didn't need a Clean Water Act permit. Well, industry challenged that and won. And the Second Circuit said that the Clean Water Act only regulates actual discharges. So you can't presume that a facility discharges and then make them get a permit. So EPA retooled and tried to accomplish a similar outcome, but in a slightly different way in a 2008 rule, which said that, okay, you don't have to get a permit, but if you discharge, if you violate the Clean Water Act and put pollutants into waters and don't have a permit, that's going to be an additional fine and enforcement action on you. So you would have the enforcement penalty of violating the Clean Water Act and the enforcement penalty of having failed to secure a permit prior to having that discharge. Again, the National Pork Producers Council challenged that, and one, the Fifth Circuit said that, again, EPA can't have this additional fine, essentially for the same reason that the Second Circuit had held back in 2005. You can't presume that a facility is going to discharge. They have to actually discharge to be required to secure a Clean Water Act permit. I mean, I remember that Fifth Circuit case. For some reason, it, it rose to my attention, even though I don't really. And it just seemed, seems like ridiculous that you, like, you say a permit is required to do this. 
but you don't have to get a permit if you're not going to do it. Okay, that makes sense. But then you do it and you can't find somebody for not having gotten that permit. <laughs> just, I don't know. It seems crazy to me. Well, and if I may, this is why monitoring and the absence of monitoring is so critical. Because the only reason that the industry can make any straight-faced argument that they're not discharging and polluting our shared waters is because there is not monitoring and there has never been appropriate monitoring in the permits for these facilities. So like, why do we know that slaughterhouses put so much pollution into our rivers? Because they monitor and they submit these discharge monitoring reports. The factory farm ministry has never had to do that, right? So they can just hide it. What well, I call it an unaccountability feedback loop. And if I can like really hammer this home, another lawsuit in the Ninth Circuit that Food and Water Watch has pending against EPA is around those effluent limitation guidelines for the factory farm industry. So every few years, EPA revisits these limitations, you know, like industry by industry. And they have this, this way of deciding who the most problematic sectors are. And they do that by looking at discharge monitoring reports. So they look at the whole sort of spectrum of industries that pollute, and then they look at the discharge monitoring reports and from those numbers decide who's polluting the most. Well, guess what? Factory farms come in really low on that list because they don't produce discharge monitoring reports. So EPA says, oh, well, they're not, they're not polluting. We don't have the numbers for that. Well, of course, because you don't require them to report their discharges. So, you know, IEPA puts a bag over its head and then, you know, see no evil, hear no evil type mentality, and then opts to not ever update their regulations to better control the industry based on sort of that myth that they have constructed. Yeah, the industry wins every which way. All right, let's get back to the case. You had mentioned the difference between production areas and land application areas, which I think, you know, those those words actually sound mean what they sound like. So we have that. Now, the permits themselves, we had talked about zero discharge permits. And can you explain a little more about, about what that means in the context of both production areas and land application areas? What is, zero doesn't actually mean zero, does it? I mean, even assuming that we're obeying them and um, we're doing everything that is required, it's still not really zero, right? That's absolutely correct. And so let's, we'll start with the production area. So production areas are ostensibly zero discharge, except for one limited circumstance. And that's when what EPA calls a 25-year, 24-hour storm event occurs. In other words, a, a huge deluge of precipitation that's outside the normal. I'll come back to that in a minute because what is normal has totally changed. But Yeah, no, this seems like a very problematic <laughs> yeah, uh, area problematic. just to start off with. And so if they have that 25-year, 24-hour storm event, they are permitted to discharge out of their lagoons, out of those cesspools. Like they, they overflow essentially, right? And that's allowed. EPA says that's the only instance that a facility is allowed to discharge from the production area. What we called out in our case is that that's not true. And these permits also allow discharges from the cesspools from the lagoons. Um, again, these are like multi-football field-sized holding pits. Almost always, it's, it, typically, it's just an earthen liner. In other words, it's just like compacted soil at the bottom. And NRCS, the USDA's Natural Resource Conservation Service, puts out all these sort of bulletins, these conservation practice guides. And 
NRCS recognizes that lagoons are designed to leak. They're designed to leach out the bottom just by their nature that that's going to happen. And so, you know, the Idaho permit, the way it structured this is it referenced a provision in the Idaho APA, which sets a, a numeric discharge rate for manure lagoons or waste lagoons. Okay. So again, it's just sort of this like bizarre, convoluted, counterfactual permitting narrative that EPA has constructed. It does allow discharges from the production area. It's just decided to ignore them, except for this 25-year, 24-hour storm event. And maybe it's totally obvious, but the reason why I say that's so problematic is because that value, like what is a 25-year, 24-hour storm event, was established, I believe, in the early 60s and has never been updated. And so obviously with climate change, what is like 25 year storm events happen every year now. So we did actually, we, we've commented on that numerous times to EPA and other agencies and they ignore it, but it's an obvious sort of flaw in the, in the rationale of the permit. And so other places where production areas discharge, this is something that not a lot of folks think about, but the enormous amount of feed that has to be stored for the animals. Because again, these animals never leave their confinement. And so the feed has to be brought to them. As that feed sits in, in these enormous piles, it starts to break down and it starts to release VOCs and other air pollutants and it starts to leach its nitrogen and phosphorus in rainwater out, right? So there's like all these different ways that the production area can ultimately put pollutants into local waterways. And so turning to land application areas, it actually, nothing in the permit says that you can't discharge from a land application area. It The, the actual limitation is that you have to minimize discharges and but it's still called a zero discharge permit isn't it it is um (laughs) despite the fact that it's not it's very orwellian absolutely that's a really good description i mean it's it is a it is a fiction that unfortunately regulators have like bought into so with, with land application areas one of the problems is that that minimization limitation to, to, to minimize your discharge is accomplished through what's called agronomic rate applications. And so again, the factory farm industry has gotten special treatment under the Clean Water Act here. And the permits are not written to protect water quality. The permits are written to ensure agronomic production. And so it isn't that a facility has to apply less of a pollutant to a field if there's risk of that running off or if the adjacent water body is already polluted with that pollution. So let's say it already has really high nitrogen and phosphorus. That's all irrelevant to EPA. EPA structures the land application practices around agronomic rates. So all they do is they require the, the operator to say what, what plants we're going to grow on that field. What does an abstract study say is the nutrient uptake for that crop? And that's how much pollution we're going to allow you to put on the field. So they ignore the heavy metals, they ignore the hormones, they ignore the other pharmaceuticals, they ignore everything other than nitrogen and phosphorus, and oftentimes only focus on one of those two. So they'll just say, okay, tell tell us how much phosphorus your crop is going to need, how much phosphorus is in the soil already, that's how much waste you can apply. And so at odds with how the Clean Water Act works in every other arena where the focus is on water quality, the focus here is on ensuring maximum crop production as opposed to a realistic concern about what pollutants actually end up in water. 
it's really hard to believe that. And, and it kind of coordinates with this whole idea that I assume has been present always in regulating factory farms under these statutes that they're absolutely necessary. They're, they're necessary to society. Producing food is necessary and these are, they are producing food. So we have to kind of regulate them backwards, like do what's good for them. That seems to be the attitude. And, you know, we're shifting out of that thought process. I hope we get out of it a little faster. So I don't think you've defined the difference between, and this was important to the case, if I understand it, the difference between wet weather and dry weather uh, discharges from the land application areas. Can you just quickly do that? And then uh, we haven't even really gotten to the crux yet because all of these weren't what the case was about. What the case was about was how they monitor whether they can do this. So, but can you just like give us that dry weather uh, requirement? And then we'll get into how they were supposed to be watching themselves and how they weren't. And that's, that's how you managed to win this case. So the wet versus dry weather distinction comes from the definition of point source. And so under the Clean Water Act, point source is defined to be ditches and discrete conveyances and concentrated animal feeding operations. And then it also says, but point sources aren't agricultural stormwater. And this is what the industry has globbed onto. Like they want to say everything is agricultural stormwater. Like anything that ever comes off my facility is ag stormwater. And so you can't regulate me. EPA's interpretation, and I think it's probably as good as we'll ever get, is that no, an agricultural stormwater discharge is a, a limited circumstance. And that's when you can prove you've complied with everything in your permit. You haven't put too much waste on the field, you know, putting aside my gripes that I explained earlier, like you've put an agronomic rate on your field and then it rains a whole bunch. Who could have believed that it would rain? I, I know, mean, in right? Idaho, like that <laughs> seems just impossible. Exactly. And, and so that's the agricultural stormwater exemption. Okay. And so that's why the court has to go into this dry versus wet because it is accurate to say that under the Clean Water Act, a storm water discharge from a factory farm is reasonably captured within that ag storm water exemption. It's being applied way too broadly as it is right now. And what we argued to the court was that, okay, let's just, just taking EPA at face value for what should or shouldn't be an exempted ag storm water discharge, that still needs to be monitored. That discharge needs to be monitored because it's incumbent on the factory farm to show that the exemption applies. EPA has flipped the assumptions and allows the industry to assume that the exemption applies, which swallows the rule that they're regulated entities under the Clean Water Act, right? And so I would argue that the ag stormwater exemption is a major problem in the regulatory regime right now in, in how EPA applies it. But if we successfully secure monitoring to force facilities to show that their pollution is in fact exempt, I think would be a huge step in the right direction, just for transparency and to show sort of how overbroad the exemption is being used. And uh, maybe I'm missing something, but was there also an argument that monitoring wasn't required even when it wasn't raining? And I mean, the dry weather, the dry weather situation, that monitoring wasn't required even to track whether there was pollution leaving the facility when it wasn't raining at all? Am I confused here? Uh, no, no, not at all. I mean, again, I do give EPA some credit in how they briefed this case. That is the general industry talking point. Yeah, yeah, okay. But EPA's, again, what they argued was that 
monitoring is required, but that the permit has monitoring. And so for the land application area, that came down to it requires a quote unquote periodic inspection of the application equipment. And so EPA pointed that and said, well, that's that's monitoring. That's good enough. That's going to assure compliance, which the court, you know, understandably <laughs> found to lack credibility. Let's get into the court decision because, uh, you know, as we've said, this is all based on whether they were monitoring or not. And what did the court decide about what was not being monitored and was required to by the statute and regulations? So the court held that land application areas have no monitoring. That that portion of the factory farm operation has to have monitoring and it currently has none. So they rejected EPA's argument that every third year phosphorus in the soil get tested or that periodically someone has to go look at the irrigation boom that spreads the waste on the field. Recognize that those are insufficient, that they do not assure compliance. The court also held that EPA failed to require monitoring out of these cesspools, out of the lagoons, because the court understood as a factual matter, they do discharge, they leak into groundwater, which then goes right into navigable waters. And so the court held that there there has to be monitoring there as well. And then the part of the case that, you know, did not go in our favor or did not go the way that we believe the law is required to be implemented is everywhere else on the production area. So the court held that the daily inspections of water lines, the weekly inspection of ditches, things like that, were sufficient, quote unquote, monitoring to assure compliance for those aspects of the production area. And so the reason why we don't agree with that and and argued it differently is because, you know, in our view, those are production practices, right? Again, going to a slaughterhouse, like slaughterhouses have to inspect their equipment as part of their operations. They also have to monitor their discharges, right? Just inspecting a line doesn't um, assure that a facility isn't going to discharge. So I think it, it sets up a really interesting pathway forward. And it'll be fascinating to see how EPA proceeds with modifying the permit, because I think the court, you know, took somewhat of a middle ground. You know, we wanted the court to hold that monitoring is looking at effluent discharges themselves. And nothing shy of that can satisfy the monitoring requirement. In other words, there's no sort of production practice that can supplant actual monitoring. And we prevailed on that for most aspects of how CAFOs pollute. But again, the court held that sort of this inspection regime for production areas was sufficient. So the next step is for this to go back to the EPA or there, did I notice there was a motion to re-argue or are there any more steps within the litigation before this goes back to the EPA? There are not. And uh, the timing is, is confusing and I don't think it really matters, but shortly after EPA issued this Idaho permit, that portion of the Clean Water Act program was delegated to the state of Idaho. And so now like moving forward, it would be Idaho Department of Environmental Quality that would issue permits like this. And so because the court vacated the permit in its original opinion and didn't say expressly that it was remanding it to EPA, EPA took the position that this is an issue for Idaho unless the court specifically remands it to us. And so we both filed briefs more or less agreeing that the court should rehear the case on the limited issue of remedy, which it did and it expressly remanded to EPA. So now we go back to that permit development process. It won't be a fully new permit. It will only address those portions that the court's requiring EPA to redo, but it'll be public notice. 
it'll go through that that whole sort of familiar process um, where industry will engage. I expect industry will engage much, much more robustly this time around. They kind of ignored this whole process and this litigation, and I'm guessing they will not make that mistake twice. And so it'll be a fight um, from here. Yeah, and most of that fight will be within the agency. How are you feeling about the agency? You said you thought that their representation in this case was could have been worse. I mean, that the the way they litigated could have been worse. Do you have hope that that they will actually do something fairly robust with these regulations? I hope so. You know, I think the Idaho permit is going to be the test case. And then from there, we'll kind of have to see where it goes. EPA understands that this industry is a huge problem. Staffers at EPA who've been there for a long time, they get it. I think they've been, you know, we talked about the two court cases where factory farm industry pretty much won. I kind of think the, the like lifers at EPA feel burned by that and have kind of just thrown up their hands when it comes to this industry. And so my hope is that EPA will take this case and the 2017 petition for rulemaking that Food and Water Watch filed with EPA, which covers all of these issues. I mean, it, it calls for a total revamp of the regulatory framework for factory farms. And that petition has gotten a lot of interest from the agency over the years, as we've learned through FOIA productions. Unfortunately, has not acted yet. But in other words, there is a vehicle sitting in front of EPA right now on how to do this right. And it's a petition filed by dozens of environmental, public health, animal welfare organizations, just laying the roadmap for them. And so I hope that the agency has the gumption to stand up to industry pressure. But, you know, I think that'll ultimately be the deciding factor is how much backbone EPA has to do its job in the face of really, really stringent pushback. Say they do have the backbone. How much can be done to dismantle factory farming? Best case scenario, what is a feasible goal? Both best case and feasible. (laughs) Uh, And feasible. Well, I am just going to go big on this one. Because uh, I get this question a lot. Oh, please do. We're all about going big here at, here at our headhouse. Yeah. So I firmly believe that the factory farm model is is fundamentally unsustainable, and not just from like an environmental perspective, like financially unsustainable, economically unsustainable, public health. Like it is such an extractive, exploitive system that the only reason we have factory farms the way we do right now is because they've been able to externalize so many of their costs. Like They've been able to put all of their problems out on the local community and the environment and not have to like bear that cost there of themselves. And so in terms of like how do we dismantle the factory farm system, I think it's, it's multi-pronged, but I do think it comes out of this core reality that factory farming is a nexus of exploitation. Factory farms exploit the animals who have to suffer through, frankly, the torture that is common practice. They exploit workers. They put them in unsafe conditions and underpay them. We saw that, obviously, during the pandemic. Factory farms destroy the environment around them. You know, Their structure is such that they cannot operate in a way that doesn't degrade the local environment. It's just not possible. And they exploit consumers. I believe there was a report, maybe out of the White House just today, sort of its second attempt to go after the big meat integrators, finding that their profits have risen 500%, their their net profits rose 500% since the beginning of the pandemic. All the while, those same companies have been whining and moaning about they need government handouts because everyone's going to starve if they can't, you know, run their factories at full tilt. And so 
they're just the, the only people that benefit from this are those making money from this exploitation. And that is not sustainable. And like I was saying before, everywhere where you see this industry flourishing, you also see people suffering. And so to the extent that we live in a society which is more receptive to human suffering than non-human suffering, I think it's critical that we beat that drum, right? Because to better the situation for human health will necessarily require better conditions for the animals. Like the, the harms are fundamentally interrelated, right? And so going after the industry on all, all of these fronts, I believe, has the inevitable result of them having to do things differently, like in a, in a very basic way. Well, I hope it's inevitable because it's certainly right. And I, I totally agree with you that we we used to see kind of the three harms as separate. You know, when you're ta- talking to people about why they should go vegan or something, there's the harm to the animals, there's harm to the environment, there's the harm to human health. They're not separate. They are all part of the same monstrous regime. And I totally, and I'm sure everyone listening agrees with you that it has to come down. But I guess my question is, how much can litigation do here under current law? Is there still a long way to go or are these statutes too limited? That's a really great question. From a feasibility perspective to the other part of your question, I think looking at existing laws is an important place to start. And let's take the Clean Air Act, for example. Like the Clean Air Act should be regulating this industry. And definitely don't need to get into the details here. And I'm not a Clean Air Act practitioner, but way back and I believe it was 2000. No, and it's hard for me to do an interview on that particular disgrace because there aren't any cases to interview anybody about because you can't bring Kate. Anyway, uh, go on. Well, no, I mean, and yeah, that's exactly right. So in 2004, I believe it was, EPA started this process to supposedly find out whether factory farms should be regulated under the Clean Air Act. And I believe it was about 44,000 factory farms opted into that program. Well, as part of that opt-in, they got amnesty under the Clean Air Act. In other words, citizens cannot sue them. That process is still going on today. Those factory farms still have Clean Air Act amnesty. Over 15 years later, an EPA you know, has put out a, a, a pretty flaccid draft proposal for how to estimate air emissions from swine facilities, for example. I mean, they're nowhere near the end of this process. And so it's not so much that our existing environmental laws don't apply. It's that factory farms have been carved out inappropriately. A, a large coalition, including Food and Water Watch, is also suing and moving forward on that front to end this amnesty program. Either get it done or end it, right? Because this endless amnesty is not okay. All right. Well, I'm going to have to interview somebody about that case because it, it it's just an outrage, just an outrage. And people don't realize like what enormous... Well, I guess people are coming to realize the enormous air pollution caused by factory farms and the extreme harms to to people who live anywhere in the vicinity. There was a study just put out over the summer which found that I believe it was an estimated 12,500 premature deaths in the United States are directly attributable to large-scale animal confinement operations because of their ammonia air pollution. So yeah, it's pretty uncontroverted. And that's deaths. We're not, e- that's not even talking about quality of life. Or, just, yeah. yeah. Quality of life and, and illness and whatever. And we could talk all day, Tyler, but I'm going to have to let you go. 
thank you so much for doing this, like and enlightening us about this case. It's a, this law is so complicated for the rest of us, but we really want to try to stay on top of it. So this is hugely helpful. Well, great. Thank you so much for interest in the topic. And it was a real pleasure being with you. Thanks so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month, that is next year, with a new show. Thanks so much to Tyler for taking the time to tell us about this extraordinary case, which could have really such a huge impact. And thank you to Jen Riley for her help in producing the podcast, to Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for the editing, and to Veronica Kolinska for graphic design. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider doing so wherever you listen to podcasts. Consider leaving us a good review there or on Apple Podcasts. And if you're able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at OurHenHouse.org, especially between now and the end of the year so that we can make our match. And thank you so much for tuning in.